นโมตัสสะบุคคะทัวระหัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุคคะทัวระหัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุคคะทัวระหัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังฆังนมัสสะโดยเฉพาะเมื่อเราถูกกดดันด้วยความกังวลและความกังวลเมื่อเราถูกกดดันด้วยความกังวลและความกังวลเมื่อเราถูกกดดันด้วยความกังวลและความกังวลเมื่อเราถูกกดด
uncertainty of life. It can be... Uh, it's, it, we, very, we very regularly default to making a problem out of it. So opportunities like the last week to really put this time aside, to look closely, to look inward, to look beyond our false securities, to try and find that which is really dependable. Yeah. Like like awareness itself, like mindfulness, like watchfulness. Yeah. Instead of uh, defaulting to the reaction to insecurity, which is fear or anxiety or greed or aversion, you know, all these reactions we have when we're confronted with uncertainty. Uh, if we actually the exercise, our commitment to the spiritual exercise of awareness means that we turn towards just knowing. That's very different. We can have our reaction, as we will, but we know the reaction with some perspective, or we make the effort to know the reaction with some perspective. We don't totally become the reaction. And so this takes, uh, this takes a great agility of attention. We need to be able to adjust with the situation yeah. To adapt, you know, like Ajahn Punyo out there, you know, walking to Hexham and no certainty at all. Is there going to be any food? Well, it's just not sure. So, you know, you're going to worry about it? Well, you can do, but that doesn't actually get you fed. doesn't help conserve your energy, so you don't worry. You learn to let go of worrying. And then you're walking through Hexham and, or whatever other village there might be and people looking at you and is anybody going to give me any food or... Or perhaps they're just, you know, going to give me one big pumpkin. You know, that sometimes happens. Monks are out there on arms around, they've got their bowl, and then somebody comes along with a great big pumpkin and gives it to them. Well, I really appreciate that. Yeah, grateful. And maybe do a little chant for them. Okay. And then you've got a raw pumpkin, you know, which just fills your bowl. And, and you, you, you know, I mean, unless you like eating raw pumpkin, yeah. Well, you could spend your time worrying and indulging in preferences, or you could practice letting go. And that's... That's really what the Buddha was encouraging us to let go of those things that those false securities, the obsessions with getting my way. But we do need to be very agile, very dexterous. Or as I was saying last week, I gave a talk on deedless and Icarus, and and uh, deedless is a good model, a suitable model for contemplating. If you look about what, a craftsman approach to dealing with life's dilemmas. He was in a total dilemma. He was in a labyrinth. He'd been dumped in the labyrinth with his son. No way out, apparently. But being a skillful craftsman, he actually thought laterally, not just linearly. If he was just committed to linear thought, he would have tried to get out the way he came in, which certainly wouldn't have worked. But he thought laterally. He thought creatively. He was a craftsman. So he managed to, as you know, the story, he made these wings. Uh, to fly off the island. So with our approach to dealing with uncertainty, we need to be very, very creative. You know, when you go, I just don't feel sure. I don't feel, I don't feel secure. Well, what do we do? What do we do when we're faced with I don't feel sure? I don't know what to do. I don't feel safe. Yeah. Well, again, if we just default to our old habits of you know, trying to make ourselves feel safe, trying to make ourselves feel secure, trying to make ourselves feel sure about something, well, that's, that's, what, that's what the worldly way is about. That's understandable. We've done that for a long time. But this is something different. Yeah. 
we, we try something new. You know, that didn't work. We've tried that in the past. Over and over again, we do all these things, and they don't really get us free from anxiety, from worry, from fear, from greed, aversion. So we try something new. Like, for instance, you know, we can just try bearing with the feeling instead of actually following the feeling and how can I make myself feel secure and just actually to bear with the feeling what does it feel like in the body what does it feel like to feel not sure yeah. so this is if, we, if we're agile with our attention we can do this instead of looking out we can actually turn around and look in and then in an intuitive approach we can get again as I was saying last week a craftsman or craftswoman's approach to practice During this last week, it came to my mind, I, I remember, as a child, I used to go fishing. I know it's not, you know, as a Buddhist, and you know, I don't recommend killing at all, but, but there was, a, as I thought about this, there was a, an interesting uh, sort of metaphor uh, for practice. There. I remember how my father and my older brother, they made this uh, in New Zealand. I don't know if you have it in this country, but in New Zealand, they, they have this practice of, of making what's called a contiki line. So you're on the beach. We used to go for our holidays. There's this lovely part of the east coast of New Zealand, beautiful beaches and, and clean water and lovely Waihi and Papamoa and Ohopi, Omapuri. So right down the east coast of, of New Zealand, North Island, New Zealand, and some lovely, lovely beaches there, great for swimming, very quiet. In those days, I, I recently went back, and they're not quiet anymore. They're rather developed with exclusive condominiums and so on but in those days there were very nice quiet places to go for family holidays and and my father was very keen on teaching us to do fishing and and we used to like it but I was too young for doing the adventurous things like making a contiki line so I watched my my father and and my brother make this this contiki and and you have to be very patient if you're making it but you, you want to get your line a long way off from the shore you know the fish are not on the shoreline the fish are way out there and if you want to get the fish you want to get the big fish you've got to somehow get your hooks way way out and so what what they did was they'd build this a little raft thing about i don't know meter by a meter and then you put a sail on it out of an old sheet and then you string it in a way where it comes down and then it's tied to you put in a, a barley sugar and then you hook it in, and then you set it sail, and then it goes out, and you've got a long line with lots of hooks on it. And this goes all the way out, goes out, and it catches the wind. You've got to have an offshore wind taking it out. And then once it gets to just the right place, well, by that time the barley sugar has dissolved, and the line drops, and there you are. And then you leave it out for the right period of time, and then if all goes well, you pull it in, and you've got a whole bunch of nice big fish. Now, again, to emphasize, I'm not advocating fishing or killing, but when I got to think about this, I, it reminded me of how, you know, in our practice, a lot of, a lot of what we have to do is, is preparation. Because of our, our lopa, because of our greed, we, we want results now. Yeah. We, want to, we want to get over our anxiety. We want to get over our uncertainty. We want to feel sure about what's happening. But... Yeah. the great teachers and the great traditions all teach the same thing, that the, the path of practice requires a lot of preparation. And just as yet, 
my brother and my father had to spend a very long time making this kontiki, this little craft, and be very clever about it. You've got to really thread it very cleverly, and you've got to think about it, and, and you've got to wait for the right time. So it is with practice. You, many of us come to meditation in very impressive tools that we're taught, we hear about, and techniques, and we want to just get in there and do it. But if we go at it too fast, well, you know, we can you know, trip ourselves up. Like if you go on a meditation retreat in traditional Asian Buddhist countries, it's assumed that you already have um, a, a, a practice well-established in dana and generosity. You turn up on the retreat and you probably come loaded with bags of, of fruit and vegetables to contribute towards the treat because you've got the heart of generosity already well established. You've got the heart of gratitude already well established. You, you know how to delight in the goodness of your life. But a lot of us, we turn up on retreat and full of anxieties and, and, and neuroses and we don't know whether we're coming and going. We just want to get on with the technique and kind of get over our problems. And say, well, you know, maybe we need to do a little bit of preparation before we go on retreat. And right, the right time as well, finding the right time. Is this the right time to go on retreat? Just because somebody else said it's good to do a retreat, we've got to check for ourselves. Is this the right time to go on retreat? Say, so, well, I don't know. How do I find out? Well, we wait with that feeling of I don't know. I don't know is not what it necessarily looks like. When we're greedy, then the greed colours our mind. Greed is, greed is like a, it's like a, a tint. If you put, you put a, 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 a dye in the water, the water's still water, it's still H2O, but it's actually it's tinted, it's not pure water anymore. Yeah. And likewise with, with anger, ill will. You know, when, there's, when there's ill will in the heart, in the mind, then it's like the water is polluted or tinted in a certain way. And all our perceptions are distorted accordingly. Now, if we don't have mindfulness, we're not really, if we're not really looking inwards, we're not really studying our own hearts and minds, then we just assume the way things appear to be. Yeah. And we go too quickly. Or we go at the wrong time. Mm. So we need guidance and we need patience. We need creativity. Mm. We need kindness. That's another part of preparation, the heart of loving kindness. And many people, in the, particularly in the West, go up with all sorts of tendencies of self-disparagement. It's happened several times. I've observed or heard about people trying to trying to explain to Asian meditation masters the feeling of being riddled with guilt or self-hatred. And, uh, and they just don't get it. You know, and Panyananda, I mean, they're trying to explain to him, and he just didn't get it. He just couldn't understand what you, what you meant by self-hatred, self-loathing. And somebody tried to explain to the Dalai Lama about it, and eventually God says, oh, yeah, in our country we call people like that crazy. Yeah. I mean, they, they, this, is, this is what we have to deal with. If, if you're full of self-hatred and self-loathing, uh, well, we've got to be very careful how fast and how intensely we push ourselves into the spiritual disciplines. Yeah. Maybe we still need to do the preparation and really 
be with us. Be agile enough with our attention to just check this out. Say, what's this heart like? Is this heart prepared? Is it ready with kindness, with gratitude, with patience? Or are we possessed, our perceptions distorted by greed and by resentment? And if we have this type of agility, this type of dexterity, then when we are faced with the uncertainty, I just don't know what to do about this. Uh, somebody uh, was relating, I was, I was talking with a Buddhist group recently and, and this person uh, was describing how she had a, uh, a really unpleasant experience, how she'd, she'd been away and she went home after having been away for a very long time and uh, her very dear friend, who they'd been friends since they were at school together, they hadn't seen each other for a couple of years, and so she rang her up and said, I'd really like to spend time with you. And, and so they both made the effort to get together, and, and so uh, her friend came round to the house that she was staying in, and, uh, and she was in this one room in the, in the house, and while well, her friend went into another room to get ready, and she happened to be able to see through into the main room where her friend was, and she saw her friend there actually going through her handbag and, and pulling out money, actually just lifting money out of her purse. And she, she was just shocked. I mean, this is her best friend who... They've known each other for many, many years, like 20 years or something, and, and this is in her house. And they haven't, they've both made an effort to put time together to go out for the meal, and, and here she actually see... And she just... She lost it. She, she was so shocked. She just ran into the room, and I, I just saw what you did. And she opened, you know, her friend's shopping bag, and there was the money sitting in her room. There was no doubt about it. And her friend just, you know, so she took the money out, and her friend just blanked it, totally blanked it. Just it didn't happen. Just went into denial. It didn't happen. And she said, what do I do with this? <laughs> well, fortunately, she's somebody who practices very well, and, and she had the sati, she had the restraint, she had the goodness, she had the kindness, she had the patience to... Have the, let the thought arise. Well, maybe my friend's actually, you know, got, you know, fallen into a psychological condition, or maybe there's something going on in her life, and I won't close my heart to her. I won't cut her out. I'll just wait. And so she did. She said, "Well, look, you know, I don't know what happened and why you've done this, um, but uh, I'm willing to drop it this time. And uh, shall we still go out for the meal?" And and so they did. They went out for the meal, and and this woman just absolutely denied that it happened. Her friend, she just absolutely refused to accept it happened. And then the phenomena of denial is like that. You know, some people can, you know, the power of delusion can just, it's not there, it didn't happen. But the person who was relating the story, she was left with this dilemma, what do I do? I just don't know, I don't know what to do. Do I cut this friend off? Do I see her again? Do I report her? Do I try and get her help? I mean, I don't know. And, and there's a tremendous sense of, of concern and I would say angst of not knowing. But in dialogue with this woman, we were talking about the practice perspective on this. I was encouraging her to consider, well, you know, do you have to know what to do? Now, you didn't steal anything. You didn't do anything wrong. You didn't cut yourself off this woman. You know you still care for her. You're keeping your precepts. The difficulty is... What is the difficulty? What is the difficulty? I want to know the right thing to do. Now that sounds so justified. 
I want to know the right thing to do. Sounds so justified. It feels very right to want to know the right thing to do. But in that case, wanting in that way, wanting with grasping, is not the right thing to do because we're stirring her mind up and causing suffering. It wasn't helping her friend, it wasn't helping her, it wasn't helping the world. So with the, fortunately, this woman, she is well trained in practice and she had the agility of, of mind to be able to turn into contact and to hear that. She could hear that. Another person in this group also was relating how uh, they, in a meditation experience, they, they get to a place of, of very, very deep stillness, intense stillness, intense clarity. And then they, they get to a, a space where there's just no knowing. They don't disappear, but there's no, clar- no certainty. There's no knowing. There's no certainty. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. There's nowhere to go, there's nothing to do. And then it's like this, this terror comes up in the meditation. What do I do? Well, I don't have those experiences in meditation. I'm not a meditation master. I can't tell them what to do. But what I suggested that they do is that when we reach that point of I don't know what to do, to remember to change gear instead of making the effort to be progressing, which is right sometimes, Sometimes we do want to be making the effort to be progressing, to going forward. But when it's time to actually stop feeling like we're progressing and just pay attention to this feeling of, I don't know what to do right now, then we need to be able to, we need to have the agility of attention to do that, to let go of this driving forward, wanting to progress, wanting to know the right thing to do. Or similarly, with death. We can have the experience ourselves, or we can witness other people having experience. When death comes, you just say, what do I do with this? Maybe we've got a religious foundation to our life. Maybe we have committed to the spiritual disciplines, and, and we trust and respect the teachings. But we don't know, I don't know, what happens after you die. I don't see anything. I don't know what's going on. I do trust in what the Buddha said. But when you're faced with it, when this this person that you've known and been close to and loved is gone, is dead, what do you do with it? What do we do with that feeling? You can't do anything with the person. They've gone. But I want to. I want to. I I often hear this. And and sadly, very sadly, uh, people will come and, and often in a state of despair say, tell me what happened. And, and well, there are unfortunately people around who will try and tell them what happened, you know, try and contact spirits and, and such things. And yeah. but from a practice perspective, from a, a perspective of being interested in reality, being interested in truth, what's true right now? What is true right now when you're faced with the great mystery of life and death? What's true is, I don't know, and I want to know. I want to be sure again. That's it. And death is one of the great levelers for that reason. And I was reading, I think it was just yesterday, um, about a, a preacher in America, a pastor. I think it might have been in the uh, a Guardian magazine that Kath bought yesterday about this uh, about weddings. And uh, this preacher in America was saying that she just can't stand doing weddings anymore. 
because the wedding industry and the whole culture has gone now in such a way where it's all about me, 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 particularly the bride. There's a huge fortune is spent on, on promoting me on my special day. And, and this preacher, this pastor was saying she just can't stand doing weddings. It just makes her ill, really. Yeah. But she says, I love doing funerals, <laughs> which was a bit bold. But she said, the reason I love doing funerals is because people are real. Everybody, young, old, male, female, beautiful, ugly, rich, poor, everybody is faced with the reality of life. The painful reality of life went so long as we're still holding on to false security. And at that point, she was saying that the heart is open and you can really offer people some guidance. At a wedding, the heart is so contracted with self-interest and self-promotion, ego aggrandizement, yeah. or envy or comparison, yeah. But when there's death, when we're faced with a great mystery, the great uncertainty we really don't know, then hopefully the, we don't collapse into the pain of sadness totally, that hopefully there's the right encouragement and love of a friend can be there at the time just to help the person bear with it. And if they can bear with it, they don't judge the apparent reality of death which is like something terrible has happened, well, it may be that we are suffering and it may be the loss is painful, but death is going to happen. Absolutely guaranteed. Of course, we all know that. Once you're born, the one thing that's guaranteed is we're going to die. And so the, uh, the feeling of this is wrong, it shouldn't have happened, it may pertain on one level, but on the level of reality, it doesn't pertain. On the level of reality, this is just so. How do we come to terms with it? Well, again, if we've prepared ourselves with the agility of attention to be able to not just grasp at old familiar certainties and just come back and just feel, I don't know, and it's okay to not know. It's okay to not know. To be not sure. It's okay to make mistakes. Yeah, if we catch ourselves when we are grasping at old habits of of wanting to be sure, wanting to know. Yeah. Then the moment we remember it, it's okay too. How long is it going to take before I let go of my habits of clinging? So I don't know. That's all right. Now, having said that, it's not, that also is not something to grasp at the idea it's okay to not know. We can make a religious technique out of that as well. So I say, well, I'm practicing just not knowing anything. Well, that might be okay up to a certain point. But there is also the need in our practice to get, our, get ourselves really thoroughly equipped with the wisdom of the elders, those who have known or those who do know, those who know more than we do, those who have seen, like the Buddha. The Buddha knew. Loka we do. We do. The Buddha saw, the Buddha knew the world, the loka. The Buddha knew the world. He knew the world as it was. He could see, he could hear, he could smell, he could taste the world. Just the same way as we do, but without making a problem out of it. He knew and saw clearly. And so the wise thing to do is, is to heed the Buddha's words, you know, to listen to what the Buddha and the teachers who have followed the Buddha's path have to say about it, but not, not to grasp these words, not to grasp at somebody else's experience. 
And because that won't protect us when we're faced with the, the great uncertainty of life. So thank you very much this evening for your, your attention. Mm-hmm.